Welcome to the Indigo Podcast, an exploration of human flourishing at work and beyond. I'm Ben Barron of Indigo Anchor and Cleveland State University. And I'm Chris Everett of Indigo Anchor. For more information, please visit us at www.indigopodcast.com. Holy Toledo, we have Steven Rogelberg on the podcast today. That's right, we do. We're just downright thrilled. So say hi, Steven. Hey, hi, Steven. It's great to be here. <laughs> yes. Yes. So Steven Rogelberg holds the title of Chancellor's Professor at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. Uh, he is a professor of organizational science, management, and psychology, as well as the director of organizational science. He has more than 100 publications addressing a whole host of issues such as team effectiveness, leadership, engagement, health and well-being, meetings at work, of course, and organizational research methods. He's the editor of the Journal of Business and Psychology, and he has received millions of dollars of external grant funding for his research. Uh, he has received numerous awards and honors for his work, including the 2017 Humboldt Award, which is an award given by the Alexander von Humboldt Foundation of Germany to internationally renowned scientists and scholars who work outside of Germany. Stephen is actually the only organizational psychologist to have ever received that award thus far. Uh, he is currently president-elect of the Society for Industrial and Organizational Psychology and the elected secretary general of the Alliance of Organizational Psychology. Stephen's latest book, which we will certainly discuss today, is The Surprising Science of Meetings, How You Can Lead Your Team to Peak Performance. It was recognized by the Washington Post as the number one leadership book to watch for in 2019 and Business Insider as one of the top 14 business books everyone will be reading in 2019. Stephen earned his PhD in industrial organizational psychology from the University of Connecticut after completing his undergraduate degree at Tufts University. Stephen's also a real human. He loves what he does. He's fun to be around. He has a soft spot for animals and animal welfare. He likes to laugh. Stephen, welcome to the Indigo podcast. Yeah. Wow. That's great. That is quite the intro. But you left off maybe the most important thing. Oh, I was gosh. also one of Ben Barron's mentors as he's getting his doctoral education completed. This That's is right. very true. So if you need to shoot somebody for Ben's behavior, you know who to go by. Oh, Chris, we had no control over Ben day one. He was telling us what to do at the get go. <laughs> <laughs> that's right that's right so i've known steven now for gosh uh more than 15 years and uh you know it's 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 been fantastic Crazy. and just so such a pleasure to have you on our podcast you know when we started this podcast one of the first things we thought of is hey when we're ready to start having guests gotta have steven so really appreciate you doing this for us now today we're actually going to have a little contest uh so chris what's the contest about Okay, so Stephen's book, The Surprising Science of Meetings, How You Can Lead Your Team to Peak Performance. First of all, thanks for writing that book because, you know, so many of our engagements, you got to go through the meetings. And now we have a one-stop source that we can use with our clients that helps. It just accelerates things. And we'll talk about that some here. But we're going to give away five of Stephen's books. Um, so... First three books are going to go to the first three people that can do these things. And then don't worry if you're late to the draw or you have to download in the evening or something like that. We're going to do a random selection over the next 30 days for an additional two books. So first, go to www.indigotogether.com slash contact. That's www 
indigotogether.com slash contact. And you're going to put your name, location, and what you do, because we're trying to figure out what are the numbskills that keep coming and finding our show? Who are you guys, (laughs) right? Uh, We want to know your thoughts about the podcast, anything you'd like us to cover, anything, any of those kinds of details, um, open up some of that dialogue. And then we need you to write a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And just include, copy paste that text from your review in there so we can validate that so many of the people that listen to our podcast are business, busy professionals, right? So I know you just listen on the way to work. You find, you subscribe. It's great. But we'd like to hear from you so we can just calibrate a little bit. And we need reviews newer than 2019. For the thousands of you that keep coming coming and finding us, who are you? We want to know. So that's www.indigotogether.com slash contact. The first three are definitely, so if you're, if you can accelerate and get this information, the first three are going to get books regardless. Now for this, the rest of you over 30 days, we're going to rando send you one. So there you go. Our first, our first contest on the show. Yay, and it couldn't be contest. for something better. So there you That's go. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so let, let's, uh, let's get down to business here. And uh, you know, Steven, you've you've gotten tons of media exposure for your research, especially the stuff on meetings, your book. Um, We actually want to start, though, by going a little bit deeper, because uh, in my observation um, over the past uh, decade and a half is that you are not a typical professor in a lot of ways. You write books, you work with companies, uh, you even within academia, you're somewhat of an entrepreneur doing all kinds of interesting things. You started the PhD program from which I graduated, which was not a an easy thing to do. It's an interdisciplinary program. We had to bring t- together people from four different departments, incredible stuff. And uh, we just want to uh, unpack a little bit, you know, why... Why do you do what you do? <laughs> Who am I? <laughs> Why yeah. do I do all these crazy things? <laughs> Absolutely. We want to you know. know. So, um, you know, I was one of those um, doctoral students. I had no clue whether I want to go into academics or go into practice. Mm. And I was really torn. Um, I very much love to try to positively impact people's lives on a day-to-day basis. But I also love being an educator and um, doing research. So I tried to chart a path in academia where I could do both of those things, uh, similar to you, Ben. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I've just wanted to do very applied research, research that's designed to address pinch points for people, right? So when you think about what causes people lots of frustration, meetings is a perfect candidate. God, is it ever? So I want to do research. <laughs> I want to do research on that to see if I could help, you know, create um, some relief from it. And at the same time, um, you know, I like like so many people, I just want to have a meaningful existence. And I want to take our science and try to apply it to vulnerable populations, um, nonprofits, people in need. So it's just been um, every pretty much almost every kind of research stream I've done. I've tried to create um, outreach projects, Um, you know, and at this point we've worked with over three, 4,000 nonprofits um, where they're able to get services to try to assess their volunteer program or their uh, employee workforce and just trying to have a positive impact on the world. And I'm just a big believer that if every human on this planet um, agrees to do something small, that these small acts accumulate 
and we can move and solve very large and trenchable problems that way. And that's what kind of motivates me to do what I do. You know, what I what I love about this is there's so many business books out there and suggestions that are crap because they're anecdotal. And what what's so great about this book specifically, not that today's podcast is only about the book, but industrial and organizational psychology in general is you're taking a disciplined science-based approach to these these real problems. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was interesting. Um, there's so many books on meetings out there. I mean, I, I, yeah. did, I went to a very crowded space and I did not have high hopes, you know, for this book, but I felt compelled to write it because I felt that what I could bring, the voice I could bring was an evidence-based path forward. And I unabashedly had the word science in the title, which is not typically like a good idea. And um, <laughs> so it was really shocking that when the book released, um, you know, okay, so one of the things you do when you're a new author is you Google yourself all the time and you're constantly checking your Amazon sales rank. <laughs> and so I'm checking my Amazon sales rank. It's, you know, it's not moving. It releases, you know, it sold a few books. But next thing I know, like the book is selling. And I'm like, what is going on here? So now I go back to Googling myself. And then that's how I, <laughs> that's how I found out that the Washington Post, you know, named it the number one leadership book to watch for. And I didn't even know that was happening, but what an amazing thing for them to honor a book that's about science. And, you know, I just, I feel like our science is so much more helpful and interesting than we give it credit for. Yes, you know, yes. Where, where we fail is helping to communicate that science in a way that all people can take something from it. And so I felt like what I got better at over time, and I was terrible with it in the beginning, was talking about our science in a way that was just interesting for folks because science is a story, right? If you unpack science, there's actually drama in it, but you have to set it up that way. And so through this journey of writing this book and writing for HBR, you know, I just got to the point where I felt comfortable, you know, integrating science, making the extrapolations necessary to, you know, to find points of relevance, right? Because if we stay really, really close to the research findings, then you can't really do much with them, but you have the ability to take one extrapolation. I didn't want to take two extrapolations, but I felt right. one was enough. And so it was a great journey. And it's really been just a ton of fun to see people's reaction to the book and to using science to solve a problem. And I, I just want to offer some encouragement out there. So, so much of the landscape, you know, when we came into this podcast, so many of the po business podcasts are a version of what Ben and I call eight minute abs for the manager, right? And it has this glossy, good morning, America, USA Today type glitzy packaging and all that kind of stuff. And I, I think people come into these places thinking that that's the format for success. We got to be like one inch, uh, you know, a kiddie pool deep full of one inch of water. And that's the only thing that'll get us out there to build a career. But here, there is literally a famine for evidence-based practical stuff. So if you're if you're in the ivory tower of academic academia, you can do so much because here's a book that's so science driven and it's not dry or boring. Like it's like the narrative is solid. It is amazing. But if you could come out and do some more science book, I just books, if any scientists are out there, there 
Stevenson a prime example that there's just a hunger for that kind of evidence-based stuff. You know, if you're a manager and you, you're concerned about your teams, the people, the things that are going on in your organizations, and you've already tried the eight-minute abs, you're looking for something solid. Unfortunately, there are far too few books uh, on the scale and quality that Steven delivers here on meetings. And and just to add to that, um, you know, I'm committed to kind of um, – to academic authors who are wanting to do this, I am happy to talk with you, um, you know, share with you how the process works because it's different. So for example, when you're publishing in the trade space, you know, you have to get an agent and the agent pitch, pitches your work and it goes to an auction and it's just a different process. So it probably sounds yucky to the average journal, peer-reviewed journal scientists. That probably sounds horrible, right? No, it's just a different set of rules, but we don't know those rules. And so I'm committed to helping any academic who, you know, wants to try to take a, you know, put their foot into that space. So maybe we can make that a contest for the sixth person who reaches out to that website. Um, yeah. So I, I'm happy to help anyone that, you know, needs help and wants to play in this space. That's awesome. Yeah. So reach, reach out to us or you can find <laughs> Rogelberg's contact on his academic site and, and we can make that happen. So, um, so let's let's move to something a little existential. So we've got this meeting piece. I mean, what do you want to do in this world? But what's the dent that you're hoping to make in the universe um, writ large, out, even outside of meeting stuff? Um, so that's a that's a very intriguing question. And, um, you know, it's interesting Um when I first started doing all this media work and I was on CBS this morning and things like that, you start to get sucked into that world. And oh, yeah. I started being asked whether I just want to be kind of a work commentator um, on TV and things like that. And, and I want to do a, and what's your next book? And um, it was really like this moment of reflection where I, I started getting sucked into it. And I'm like, okay, I can do a surprising science of whatever series. And then I stopped and I realized that's not what I wanted. And, you know, I felt like my um, identity as a scholar was, you know, staying true to the science. And this was a reflect, you know, this book was, you know, 20 years of my science. And so I, I, I realized I want to stay true to my brand. And, you know, what I want to do with my life um, going forward is just continuing to look for ways to positively impact the lives of the people around me and the communities that I'm part of. And I don't know what that looks like. But I just want to lead a life of purpose, and I'm prepared to zig and zag as needed, you know, to do so. So I don't really have um, a real strong map of what my next project is. I know I want to work on diversifying the pipeline into our disciplines because we just we we haven't succeeded on that front. So I'm passionate around that. Um, you know, I'm still have passion around meetings. Um, you know, one of the topics I really like to go more into is one-on-one -on -one meetings. You know, those meetings between a supervisor and a subordinate. Oh, um, nice. I want to keep you know working with nonprofits to try to figure out how I can help them help others. Um, so I, I guess the the short answer to your question is you know more of the same. Mm -hmm. Um, but I become at peace with with that. I feel like. It's helpful. And I feel like sometimes you go through life always saying, well, you know, what's the next really big thing I need to do? And by doing that, you're just never, you're not as planted in the moment and you're not as grateful for the moment that you're in. And I've just reached a point in my life and I'm not like this old grizzly guy, but I've just reached a <laughs> point where I, 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 I relish the gratitude 
I relish trying to look for the smaller things that I can move the dial on and just keep the fight up on all these various fronts. Mm, that's awesome. That's awesome. You know, well, one project that you have uh, um, coming up is uh, your increased enlarged role within the Society for Industrial and Organizational Psychology. So as I mentioned in the bio, Stephen is the president-elect of that organization. And um, I, I think it'd be interesting just to share with our listeners, who many of whom are not in our field, but I think so much of what we do in industrial and organizational psychology certainly applies broadly to work and beyond even. Um, so, you know, I guess just in your own words, uh, you know, explain a little bit for our, our lay listeners out there, um, what is industrial or, and organizational psychology and what is this, the Society for Industrial and Organizational Psychology? Sure. Um, so if you think about psychology as being the study of uh, mind and behavior, you know, IO psychology is the study of mind and behavior at work. So it's really a field dedicated to um, understanding and working in, in, to improve the world of work. Um, examining individual and organizational health, well-being, and effectiveness. And so it has a wide variety of topics it looks at, from how to the best select employees into organizations, to train them, to motivate them, to engage them, to keep them healthy, and to, you know, and to help them be effective. And then it also moves up to teams and organizations in those quests as well. And SIOP, the Society of for Industrial Organizational Psychology is a 10,000 member plus organization. It's the largest collection of IO psychologists in the world. And, you know, so people with this degree, be it a master's or a doctorate, um, can be part of this society. And it really is a collection of, you know, pretty amazing people. Um, it's so unique because you can't find many professional organizations that's filled with both academics and practitioners under the yeah. same roof. Yeah. And yeah. that's so special. But interestingly, the challenge of having two incredibly different audiences under the same roof is that basically both are unhappy half the time. <laughs> so so it's, a, it's, a, it's a beast of an organization in some regards, yeah. right? Because, but that's, that's how you know you're being successful. If everyone's a little bit unhappy, then you know you're doing things right. Yeah, you know, and so um, what you actually kind of speak are speaking to there, I think, is, you know, that... IO psychology is a, a rather applied field, and we have both uh, researchers and practitioners in it. Um, oftentimes, what we talk about, and there's a lot of um, kind of consternation sometimes around this idea of there being a gap between what we do in science and what is done in practice, um, kind of going both ways. Um, I guess, do you think that's a problem? Do, what does it mean? Um, what are your thoughts around that idea? Yeah. So there's definitely a gap. Um but that doesn't mean that we're not doing things right as well. Um, so I think there's lots of examples of our um, academic research um, being applied effectively in practice. I mean, goal setting, for example, right? We can find lots of examples where there, the gap has been you know, eliminated. Uh, we can find lots of examples where the academics are being responsive to the needs of practitioners and trying to do, you know, meaningful research. I mean, selection in, is an example. Mm -hmm. um, selection, selection of what for uh, people that aren't pros? So selection into organizations, right? Mm -hmm. So what are the best metrics and best ways of doing that? Hiring, right? Hiring. Yeah. Um, but then on the other hand, there's clearly a gap too. There's clearly, I should say, opportunity. Um, you know, if you think about the academic journals, they're not being read by practitioners. And there's good reasons for that. Um, you know, A, 
Our journals are not open to people, right? You have to have a subscription. And a subscription that say to the Journal of Applied Psychology is four times the amount of HBR, Harvard Business Review. So who would who would get that subscription if you're a practitioner? And so our journals, you know, aren't easily accessed. Um, and then if you read our journals, you know, they're not written for practitioners. Um, mm -hmm. So we contribute to the gap that way. You know, at the same time, we need more practitioners, you know, collaborating with academics so we can learn the types of practical issues that they're having and try to address, you know, do research in it. So we did a special feature, for example, at Journal of Business and Psychology, the journal I'm editor for, where all the authors were practitioners. And each practitioner basically took a practice area and said, here's the research we would love to have. Yeah, that's so great. So, awesome. I mean, I just think that, yes, there's a gap. There's lots to celebrate and there's still lots of opportunity. But, you know, it's a tension that our field is is wrestling with. I love that we wrestle with it. And, you know, I think that um, we just have to keep on this lifelong journey to keep trying to do better on it. That's right. That's right. So, you know, this podcast that we're, we're doing here and our work, uh, Chris and I, you know, in our consulting work and so forth, um, what we're really interested in is how people can f truly flourish at work and, and beyond work. Um, and I'm curious to know what your perspective is in terms of how does, uh, does IO psychology perhaps have a role to play from a research and practice perspective in the flourishing of people at work and beyond and kind of how and why might IO psychology play a role in that? Oh, yeah. I mean, I certainly do. I think um, if you look at the body of work that IO psychology, um, you know, has and the topics it addresses, you know, to me, it's all about flourishing. It's all about individuals flourishing and teams flourishing, leaders flourishing. Um, you know, the I mean, it's like almost every single topic area, I think, taps into that. Um, you know, you can look at, for example, a major topic area in IO psychology is the study of leadership. And, um, you know, the notion of leader member exchange, which is, you know, really this idea of understanding the relationships between leaders and subordinates. And while we used to think that, you know, this one set of behavior that all leaders can do would be the secret sauce to having an effective team. But I think our understandings have gone beyond that, mm -hmm. you know, that relationship with that supervisor, you know, subordinate and, and trying to figure out what, you know, best works for that and how, you know, that can elevate um, effectiveness and, you know, and health and well-being. So I just think there's tons of examples um, where that research is really about flourishing. And I love that you use the word flourishing because to me, flourishing comprises both effectiveness, but also health. Sure. And I, and I think that's great. And I think that's really what IO psychology is all about. IO psychology is not a tool of management and it's not a tool of the worker, right? It's about, Yes, we want people to be effective, but it's not at the expense of their health and well-being. And so it's this notion of a happy worker and a good worker. We want both. And right. that's what flourishing, I think, is is really also about. You know, I, I talk about this handshake when we allowed organizations to incorporate, right? So we say, well, hey, we want you to go out there into the world, take some risk. And if you fall on your face, we're not going to come take the shirt off your back and put you and your family out on the street. But a big piece of, you know, in, in the days before the one minute business plan and all that stuff, you know, they have these books on putting together a business plan and a piece that I haven't seen in a while. Of course, I haven't looked at these books in a while, to be fair, was this idea of responsibility back to society because society deputizes you to take that risk. 
and gives you some some hand back. But if we're only focused on shareholder value, which I would say shareholder value should not only be denominated in cash, but also that they live in a really cool society now. You got cash and society. I mean, that that's really awesome. But, you know, early in management, and it kind of came up through how management evolved. It was that, you know, they science the heck out. Well, they mapped it. You know, the, if Bill has a shovel and does two scoops an hour, you know, all that kind of <laughs> stuff, there became everybody became a brick in the wall, right? A cog in the machine. And, and the idea of the perfect worker was how close to an automaton could you be? But we understand now through the psychology, if you want to, let's say you want to work worker lifestyle, um, the life cycle of the worker to be, go from 20 years to 40 years or whatever, you have to have these psychology elements. We cannot, a society where you take people in, in their youth, grind them in the meat grinder of corporations and spit them out, spent dead on the side of the road, is not the way to go. That, it's just not right. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, I think we've evolved. Um, you know, I, one of the questions I often get asked in some of the, the media interviews around my book is, well, would the world be a better place with the elimination of meetings? And to, to me, maybe answer, in your organization, <laughs> it would. <laughs> you know, to me, the answer is always no, because, you know, meetings are an evolution, right? When you think about control and command systems in the Industrial Revolution, you know, we didn't want to honor people's voices, right? We didn't care. We we had the great man theories, right? And, you know, we would just trust in the great man to lead us. And we recognize that's just not a good way of working anymore. And so we want to honor the various uh, opinions and perspectives of an entire workforce. And we recognize that through a diversity and inclusion, we can thrive, we can be more creative, we can reach more markets, we can do more impactful and meaningful work. And so I feel like, you know, this idea is of burning people out just doesn't make as much sense, right? So if we can keep you, you know, contributing and also keep you healthy so that you become more resilient and agile during crazy times like COVID, right? This is all the signs of a powerful organization that's able to zig and zag, you know, with their workers um, and be able to take on any challenges. You know, when we, when I, when I work with organizations and they say, you know, and I have like a CEO say, yeah, you know, people are waiting for COVID to end so we can get back to normal. I'm like, no, that's a completely false way of looking at this. Like we're mm -hmm. never going back to normal. There's going to be another COVID type thing that happens. So the, the most important thing is to take lessons from this and how to be resilient and agile in, in the face of whatever unknown thing happens to us. And this is where it goes to your point, Chris, that I think we're best able to do this with and through people who are also in a good place. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and one of the cool things during this time with COVID, you know, coming out of IT project management, uh, change management background, Ben and I both have heard so many examples of how quickly people were able to pivot to work at home. They said, if we decided to do this as a strategy, it would have cost us like $20 million and taken 18 months. But hot darn it, we are like five days, <laughs> 500 grand, and everybody's working at home. Yeah. So like the, the necessity, so when people get cynical about change isn't possible, change can't happen. If you know what, if you're in a room that the door locks and it's filling up with water, 
all of a sudden, all this creativity gets released. And, and the kind of meeting you have if you're in a room, the three of us filling up with water isn't, and now Ben will read from the agenda and the minutes, uh, right? That's not the kind <laughs> right. of meeting we have. So, so let's go into that. that let's, can we go into some of that, some, your book? Is that all right? No, it's not. I don't want to talk about my book. <laughs> well, it, you've been on like every top flight media show. And here we are as the Indigo podcast, like a little piece of sandpaper down here next to the, you know, chainsaw. No. Of... <laughs> I, I saved the best for last. The best for last. <laughs> well, you heard it here, folks. This is Steven's last interview with anyone the last so. interview today this will be the last one today oh gosh gosh awesome yeah so i mean i guess we should discuss it because it's apparently a successful book apparently people like it and it's doing a lot of work um and i, I say that in jest of course because it is a great book and uh you know i use it in my in my course that i teach on leadership for for mba students i think it's great um you know you've been on a ton of media already talking about it so we're going to take a little bit of a different course here but i think kind of uh it's important to also set the scope, you know, I guess how many meetings are happening? Um, how do we know, or do we know about how many of those are bad meetings? Yeah. So some of the best, uh, stats that I've seen on meetings, um, was done by Elise Keith and they estimated around 55 million meetings a day in the U S alone, um, over a hundred million meetings a day globally. Um, uh, my, my research that I've done with various organizations when I do, like I do these meeting audits, and in these meeting audits, we, we kind of examine the effectiveness of, of meetings. And I've generally found that approximately 50% of time in meetings is a good use of time. Now, notice that my language is different than a lot of other people. I'm classifying the percentage of time in a meeting because I don't believe that meetings are good or bad. It's just a percentage of time that's good or bad in any right. particular meeting. <laughs> and so what, what I try to advocate in my work is just increasing the, the ratio of good to bad time. So I think we're around that 50%-ish. Um, but, you know, I've actually, um, I just collected some data and um, focusing on virtual meetings. And those numbers were actually up. Um, mm. It would look like the percentage of time um, that was a good use of time in virtual meetings was really kind of moving up into the high 60s, low 70s in this recent project I did. So Ver versus what would the standard percentage be? It was below 50 for virtual mm. meetings before COVID. Gosh, you know, I gosh. think people really did not know how to use the technology at all. And I actually think we're seeing some greater comfort with the technology yeah. and we're seeing some. Un, um, unexpected gains in meeting effectiveness. But this is only one data sample, so I don't know for sure that's the case. The right. other thing that I seem that the data seems to suggest is that meetings are on the increase, right? Without us being in the workplace, seeing each other, we're relying on meetings to monitor performance much more readily. So the meeting load of individuals seems to be increasing. Mm -hmm. You can't stand miserly in the in the corner, staring over your cubicle minions. <laughs> <laughs> Got to get them on Zoom to see yeah. if they're actually I'm gonna working. I'm going to stare at you through the camera. <laughs> you know, it's so That's bad. Right. I'm so cynical about some of this environment. I was just like, we need a technology platform that allows us to just turn on their camera so we can see if they're at their laptop or not. You right. know, <laughs> Ugh, <right>. barf. <laughs> That's right. So, 
so, you know, a lot of meetings happening. Uh, some of that time is effective. Some of it's not. Um, so why should executives care about this? You know, I mean, it's, not, it's such a great question. Um, executives should care about any activity people are spending a ton of time in. They should care about any activity they're spending a ton of time in and expressing frustration. <laughs> oh. Right. So if you imagine people saying, I have a computer at work, I use it a ton of time and it's only good 50% of the time. <laughs> <laughs> executives would be like, we need to fix this. No, this right? is real. So like I sitting on high level conversations about deployment of technology assets, people looked at back in windows 95 era, the reboot time. Cause right. I mean, it's still that way. A lot of, you know, something, what do you got to do? You yep. always got to reboot like Adobe. You spend more time updating it and probably using it. But they looked at that time and they did this huge analysis. Another thing is employee satisfaction scores. Yep. You know, they'll look at everything. Do we have a foosball or a beer keg? But the, but I've never seen a meeting quality in an employee satisfaction score for an organization. Yet that's like, in some orgs, it's like 40% of their work week is yeah. in meetings. Yeah, it's crazy. It's a blind spot. Um, organizations have these massive amounts of blind spots when it comes to meeting meetings. They, they almost assume that bad meetings are a way of life and they don't need to do anything about them. They've been institutionalized. Yeah. And it's just <laughs> false and bad practices are institutionalized. Yeah. Right. Right. We, we call that the, uh, Shawshank redemption effect. Okay. <laughs> you, you heard it here first. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's a tremendous issue and problem. Um, and so, you know, when you think about, um, you know, what organizations can do about this. So, you know, first of all, why does, why are IT issues so elevated? Well, we have a chief technology officer and that chief mm. technology officer has this responsibility of making sure technology is aligned and doing what it needs to do. And the investment, there's a return on the investment. Right. Well, we right. don't have a chief meeting officer. Right <laughs> now, I'm not saying we need to hire someone to be a chief meeting officer, but it can be an explicit role that the chief talent officer has or can be an explicit role that the chief operating officer has. Right. Where they own this massive amount of time that they are asking their employees to invest and they want to make sure there's a return. So, you know, that's one level of accountability. And then um, it's really interesting. I've given a lot of talks to different groups. And so one talk I did, I want you to imagine an audience of chief talent officers from, um, you know, all from the Fortune 500 companies. I want you to imagine 100 people in that audience. And I asked the audience, how many people in this room have on their employee engagement survey any content on meetings? So yeah. 100 people, how many people raised their hands? Zero. <laughs> so it wasn't that bad, but there was two, 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 two. And, my, and, and, and they were lying. Those were the two that were lying. <laughs> right. They raised their hands after they saw everyone else say none. <laughs> so, you know, it's, if you think about that and we assume that those two people are telling the truth, right. I mean, what, again, another tremendous blind spot. It, it, if people you I mean, engagement surveys should have on them content directly related to what people spend their time on. Right. So without having content on meetings, you never are able to create a dashboard around meeting effectiveness. You're never able to hold any leader accountable. Right. So if a leader is leading their team and the meetings are horrible, that person will never find out. And this is particularly problematic 
because of something we found in the research. Are you ready for a research finding? Yes. Yeah. Love okay. It. So if you survey people after a meeting and you ask them, was that a good meeting? One person will invariably say, yes, that was a good meeting. <laughs> and who is that person? The one that was looking at their phone candy crushing the whole time. <laughs> I'd say it's probably the, either that person or the person who led, led the meeting. So the meeting leader is saying that this was a really good use of time, but we know that's not aligned with everyone else. So you have this situation where the fact that the meeting leader is in control, that they're talking a lot, right, is leading them to this inflated sense of effectiveness. So this blind spot means that they need to have some type of feedback. They need to be held accountable. Yeah, I've never seen this stuff on 360 reviews. No, is that weird? Very weird. You know, like you're a nice boss and everything, but your meetings stink. Yeah, and you don't, <laughs> you don't see it on onboarding initiatives. So if yeah. you look at onboarding, you don't even see it in high potential initiatives. And again, I mean, this is crazy. If you think about um, onboarding and high potential, you're basically telling people you're going to be moving into a leadership position. You're going to be responsible for more and more people. And the mechanism that you're going to use to bring folks together are meetings. So let's make sure your meetings are as great as they possibly can be. Like that conversation is not taking place. Yeah. So wow. a, pra a pragmatic piece of tidbit here for if you're out there in the leadership and development world, well, first of all, congratulations. You're in one of the few organizations that actually has an L&D focus. Um, you know, <laughs> larger ones have it. But if you're talking about how do you buy time from these people not being sitting at their cubicle cranking out work, you know, one of the first things you can bake into your training initiatives is, hey, listen, execs, here's the, here's the science. We can increase 20% more time for our people on this. And I'm going to give you 10% for them to turn out the widgets or whatever that work is. But I want 10% of that time back for these other key training and leadership and development issues. Yep. Yeah. We did um, one of the exercises I've done for some clients is, you know, basically we identify what percentage of time is a good use of time in meetings. And then we can start running models. We can say, well, if we're able to make that 10% better, Given the fully loaded salaries and how much time people are spending, right. we can actually identify how much money you will recoup from that. Mm -hmm. And it's not- Yeah, and I want some of that for my training budget and right. some of that time. So, because all these <laughs> leaders, they grow up, it's monkey see, monkey do. Yes. They're generally not science-based leadership interventions or trainings like, well, you know, I grew up under Jim Bob and Jim Bob, you know, this is how I did it. And so that's the kind of leader I become. Or I grew up under Stacy and this is how she ran meetings. She, she led the way. So that's now how I draw do meetings. We got to break this cycle with evidence, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that, but I think that's exciting. Um, yeah, totally. And totally. I, you know, so, I mean, you know, this is why I'm also a little optimistic when I, when I look about, look at how this book has done and I'm still contacted um, on a weekly basis to talk about the book and its content. And it's over a year, right? That's right. not typical. And I, you know, so I feel like this might, there might be a point of inflection here mm -hmm. and that people are finally starting to realize that there is a real win here, that there's an incredible opportunity to make meeting time better. And, you know, even if you take the example of, you know, doing a better job of managing meeting size, 
right? So right. If, if I can effectively manage meeting size so that Ben doesn't have to attend a meeting that it's not all that relevant to him, I'm giving Ben the greatest gift in the world. He gets 100% right. of that time he doesn't have <laughs> That's to, right. you know, as my wife's like, oh, but the, the clothes are on sale. But you save 100% of the money you don't spend, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, you know, and people are craving this more time, right? They're, yeah. And they're craving uninterrupted time, right? Time where they can be creative and thoughtful. Um, you know, because right now our work days are just broken into so many pieces that we just don't have the strong time to kind of just think. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we used to think that, well, only creative professionals need that uninterrupted time. This is mm. so false. Right. Everyone needs un un uninterrupted time. Leaders absolutely need un un uninterrupted time, right, where they can mm -hmm. step back and think differently about things. So, for example, you know, let's take COVID. You know, so we can constantly get into this thought pattern of how do we do exactly what we were doing before COVID? now that their COVID exists. Mm -hmm. Well, that is one thought pattern and I get it and that's important. But there's another thought pattern, which is what are some new opportunities that we have as an organization? What are some new opportunities for us to shine and establish ourselves in the marketplace in, in incredibly powerful, meaningful ways that actually didn't exist? Well, that's very exciting thought. But you need time to have those thoughts. Right. Right. And when you don't take the time, this is the execs that we get to. We call them the COVID tunists. They're like, I know we'll take our same sales email message and we'll just be put because COVID in the front. <laughs> and, and, it, and then it came out like these people, like some of these guys are keeping a list of this is such a garbage interaction. I can't trust this company for anything. So this is, if you don't have time to stop and do that thinking and be thoughtful in a way, you're actually hurting your bottom line. Exactly. You know, one great example, one example that I, I love, um, there's a restaurant and I'm forgetting the name. And um, if my kids were here, they would tell me in a, in a flash. Taco so Bell. It's in Norway and it's been consistently rated the number one restaurant in the world. And it's fine dining. Mm. Well, as you know, fine dining during COVID is really hard to do. Mm -hmm. And fine dining restaurants are going out of business. Well, this restaurant, Noma, Noma. Yeah, yeah, yeah I've heard of and, Noma. And um, so they changed their business model. Every day, they release a, one hamburger, well, a meat option and a vegetarian option, and a particular type of a beer. And that's their entire menu. And, the, you know, they spread out the patio or people can do a takeout. Well, they are killing it, right? <laughs> Everyone right. wants their hamburger. Right. And it's just a brilliant pivot, right? And you think about Noma being fine dining. It, a hamburger, a daily hamburger is the opposite of that. Yeah. But it was yeah. fantastic. Yeah, I mean, they're not, their creativity is allowing them not to be straight jacketed by the way they've always done business before. That's right. They can say, hey. We're great chefs. What can we do now that people yeah, if we would can't want? do a burger? Something's wrong with us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So everyone wants a Noma burger. I want one now. I do too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's right. You know, one thing I'm curious about, Stephen, is you know you've been researching meetings for 20 years, and you came out with this book. Um, are there any things that you learned about people um, that you didn't already know, kind of in the course of doing all this research uh, about just humans? 
Um, I mean, I wouldn't say that I had epiphanies per se, mm-hmm. because, um, you know, one of the things I've observed is that how when people are exposed to the content, how very how a light bulb goes off mm. and they feel guilty and they want us to do better. Um, I did this presentation to um, the top 100 leaders at a, at a major um, organization. And after I was done, the CEO stood up, turned to her reports and basically apologized. Wow. And she wow, said, that is huge. And said, gosh, I have not been leading my meetings as effectively as I could. I have not been honoring your time. And as an educator, I truly believe, and I, this is why I'm not surprised by, I truly believe that when people are exposed to education and knowledge, that they will do something with it, that they'll want to seek opportunities to better themselves. So I would say that that's just been reaffirmed. Um, And it's exciting to see, um, it's, it's exciting to see how willing people are, to make changes. And I see it because um, I'll get, you know, I'll get contacted by these organizations I've worked with. And, you know, there are differences. Um, I can tell you this, like, I I almost never get invited to any meeting that's an hour long now. Because <laughs> I, I talk about it in my book, this idea that it's an arbitrary <laughs> number, and we should be more strategic. Can't invite Steven to the one hour meeting, he'll think really poorly of us. So I am never invited to a one hour meeting. Like it's- my, Microsoft Outlook has more to do with our meeting cadence than right. any kind of design thinking or planning. Exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And that's, you know, that's, that's crazy. Um, now, Google Calendar has become more nimble, because now you actually have a setting in there that you can default to speedy meetings. So instead of an hour, it's defaulted to 30 minutes. But yeah. really, if you want to exer- if you want to demonstrate that you're a good steward of others' time, right, you can change that setting. It's not that hard to have a different number in there. Yeah, you know, like, 24 minutes, whatever. Right, or you can even start your meeting at 12 minutes after the hour. Oh my gosh, how crazy is that? G- give people time to actually show up and be ready. Right. And, Imagine that. Right, you know. And especially right now with Zoom fatigue, like, you know, there's just no reason for us to start our meetings at the hour or on the half hour, right? right. So we could basically be the leader that says, you know what, we're going to start this meeting at 10 minutes after. Um, and people will pick up on why, Yeah. right? And they'll yeah. know that they get to stretch and take a little walk. And then they come to your meeting and they enter into your meeting with a slightly different mindset, mm-hmm. right? Because they know that you've actually been thoughtful. Right, right. So your book has been out for, we're recording this at the end of July, 2020. Your book's been out for a little bit more than 18 months. Uh, what are people still messing up? Um, you know, have you, are you noticing thing, you know, recurring problems uh, or any signs of hope out there? Yeah, because because we we're in the coaching space, right? And you could give somebody the information, right, or teach it, and then you kind of got to follow up. So if you were in a coaching situation with the most common problems yeah. that you're still hearing about, what okay. what would you be doing the feedback cool. on? So first of all, the things that I think people are doing well, um, I think they are being a little more thoughtful on um, time in meetings, scheduling the meetings. I think they are being a little bit thoughtful about how many who needs to be at the meeting. 
um, mm-hmm. trying to keep that as tight as possible. I think mm-hmm. they're also being a little bit more thoughtful with how they do their agenda. So for example, one of the things I talk about is instead of framing your agenda as a set of topics to be addressed, consider framing your agenda as a set of questions to be answered. And by framing that. as questions to be answered, you inherently are more thoughtful. You have a better sense of who truly needs to be there because they're relevant to the questions. You know if the meeting's been successful because the questions have been answered. So I, I'm yeah. seeing more of those things happening. Here's what I think leaders uh, struggle with the most. And I don't think it's going to be a surprise to either one of you. I think what they struggle with the most is facilitation, mm-hmm. right? Of being plugged into the dynamics of the conversation and figuring out how to best manage that conversation, how to bring in additional voices, how to create a safe environment. And just to, you know, and a good example is conflict, right? So we want conflict in meetings. We don't want conflict to be about person, people, but we want conflict of ideas. Right. And that takes work, right? So facilitating the conversation and, you know, even in your line of work or one of your lines of work, you think about podcasts. You know, when I think mm-hmm. about, um, you know, I do some podcasts where, you know, the, the, the interviewer, they have a script. Mm-hmm. We are not right. going off that script. No. You no. know, and it could be the case that I answer the question that literally I just answered their next question, but they're still, they still ask it, right? So mm-hmm. they're not present zigging and zagging. You know, right. contrast that to this conversation, right? There's a flow to it, and you're you're actively trying to facilitate and find the natural energies. You're still keeping to an agenda because you had one, but you're trying to find the rhythms to elevate this conversation to make it interesting to your listeners. And right. I think that's a lot of the similar skills that a meeting leader needs to have, but it's really, really hard, especially yeah. when you want to privilege your ideas over everyone else's. Right. So if you're in a meeting doing all the talking, it's so much harder for you to facilitate. Yeah. Yeah. So if someone's struggling with this facilitation piece, and I agree, that's something that I've noticed, and it is a, it's a hard thing, it's a skill. Uh, where should someone go kind of for best practices on this? Or is what, what should an executive do if they're listening to this and saying, thinking, gosh, you're right, I'm not a great facilitator. How should I try to fix that sure. or get better? Okay. What do you think? It's good. Um, so first of all, I mean, I mean, I don't mean to be um, trite. I mean, my, in my book, I have a whole section of what it looks <laughs> Obviously like. Obviously, read um, the book. <laughs> so, you know, I think you have to know what it looks like. What is What yeah. are the behaviors of good facilitation? And at least be aware of them. Um, right now, I don't think we're very aware of them. So being aware of them, I think, is critical. Then I think there it comes down to feedback, you know, gathering some information for people. Um, you know, when I when I first started doing media interviews, there was always one question that I bombed. And it was the question that I was never prepared for. And basically, especially the short interviews, um, they would ask me, okay, so give us the one best piece of advice for meeting leaders. And I I struggled because there isn't one magical piece of advice, right? The whole right. book is, it's not a formula. The book- This like, is, we talk about this all the time. If you're listening to the freaking- there, and there's leading podcasts from organizations that try to give. And I love HBR, but some of their articles are just too concise. So people right. feel that they've got and that they're done. If you're going to be a leader, you you have a devout responsibility to the people that are around you and the next generation of leadership that you're raising up to take more than a tweet length of, you know, approach 
to life because otherwise you're gonna have a tweet and you know twitter's struggling right now by the way <laughs> uh, but you, you just can't do it it is care do you do you want the doctor doing an operation on your heart that did the mail-in degree option not i mean not, nothing wrong with like some of these online platforms but the one that like maybe got his buddy to take a couple of tests for him so he could go fishing that that's that's not what you want so you can't take that approach to your daggone meetings, to your daggone facilitation <laughs> skills. Come on, guys. Like, listen, if you're one of those, I want you to do 10 push-ups right now and say, if I can't be smart, I'll at least be strong. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, ran over. Okay, so... Um, <laughs> so so basically, I'd be asked that question, I would stumble um, because I agree with Chris that it... It boils down something complex into something overly simple. But I still needed to answer that question. And I finally came up with an answer that satisfied me and stayed aligned with the science. And I think I'm circling back now to, your, to the question of um, what should leaders do? And so the, the, my answer is, if you want to make your meetings better, the best thing you can do is ask people who regularly attend your meetings for suggestions, right? Do a quick survey. What's going well in our meetings? What's going not so well? And what can we do differently? Getting that information hopefully will help provide the mirror that you need to help, you know, to figure out the tweaks that you have to have, right. Mm -hmm. right? And this is like a perfect time, right? We've been doing COVID meetings, I mean, what, five months now, right? So this, if you're a leader and you have not reached out to your folks and said, listen, we're doing virtual meetings. Let's make sure that they're, they're as good as they possibly can be. Take this quick three-minute survey. If you haven't done that, like, it's insane, right? How do we expect these activities to be better if we never ask the stakeholders, what can we do to make them better? It's the ultimate act of stewardship. Yeah, and leaders are always struggling. They're like, well, well what do they think about me? What? Am I doing a good job? And they wish they could have this crystal ball so they could gauge real employee sentiment. Well, you're right. There's always going to be that. They might not tell you if you're a complete jerk type thing. But you are 100% blind if you don't even daggone ass, guys. That's right. Yeah. 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 You know, so the, the great advice on, on meetings, I think, here, and I think just a wonderful opportunity for leaders everywhere to really make their organizations better. And, you know, I want to, I want to, uh, kind of wrap up our conversation about the meetings uh, element here with a quote from your book. And this comes from towards the end uh, where you say, and I quote, my hope is that as a meeting leader, you try new approaches and you experiment to improve your meetings. You need not try everything at once. In fact, you can try just a small number of things and see how it goes. Then with time, you can add more and more. Make this an active process. Try, reflect, and learn. And then you go on to say towards the end of that paragraph, Together, we can fix the current dysfunctional state of meetings, one meeting at a time. At the very least, as a meeting leader, you can fix the meetings you lead and control, end quote. I love that. Isn't that a, wow, someone smart wrote that, right? <laughs> so, obviously. But what I'm curious about is, okay, imagine everybody does that. What does the world of work look like in that, in that world? Yeah. You know, by the way, it's funny. Um, when, I, when I do these various interviews, I realize that the person who has um, has read the book, um, 
or who doesn't remember the book is typically me because I haven't looked at this book <laughs> for years. Um, yeah. So it's, it's really funny when people bring out things and like, oh my gosh, I, I didn't realize that was in the book. So <laughs> that's great. <laughs> you know, um, Ben, I think it kind of goes back to how we started our interview. And really, yeah. I mean, that passage is very aligned to my philosophy of life of try to fix things in small steps one step at a time and small acts accumulate. And I feel like that's the thinking behind meetings. Um, this is such a frequent act. There's so many. And really, um, you know, fixing one meeting at a time, even if you only fix, you know, make 20% of your meetings 20% better, that's still huge, yeah. right? So when you think about coaching, if there's a leader behavior that occurs you know, very rarely, that's a much harder behavior to coach on. Right. Sure. But if there's a leader behavior that occurs like all the time, like that's the kind that we can move the dial. And the beauty of it is, and I think this is why I think my book feels different because it isn't takes an optimistic perspective on meetings, is that your audience, your attendees are hungry for it. Right. Right. I mean, they're going to appreciate the efforts you're making because you know how frustrated they are. So yeah, it's a perfect yeah. situation for you to demonstrate excellent leadership, right? By you collecting this information and making changes, you're sending the message to people to do that the same, do the same for aspects of their own working world, right? Mm -hmm. What can they do to make tweaks, to make things better? You know, learn, reflect, grow. Right. I mean, yeah. that should be the, the mantra every leader has. Um, the more we experiment. And the fact is, like, even if you try something in your meeting, so let's say you organize your agenda by questions and it doesn't work. Well, what damage have you done? Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And right. Um, I mean, it's going to work. It's going to yeah. work. But if it doesn't work, still people are going to say, well, at least this person tried something. Yeah. Tripping, tripping and stinking a little bit on your way to better is way better than not getting better. That's right. Love that. That's right. So you research a lot of things. You have an eclectic kind of mix of all these things that you research. Um, and I'm curious to know, are there any other areas of your research that you wish were as popular as your work on meetings? Um, oh, that's fun. Um, I mean, at this point, I've done such a big pivot to meetings. Mm -hmm. So before the book, um, I was definitely doing research on a variety of so many different topics from health sure. and well-being to, um, you know, leadership to non-response to surveys, mm -hmm. all those various uh, employee engagement, um, diversity inclusion. And obviously I feel like all those topics, I'd love, you know, to talk about them. And I think in all those topics, the science can elevate them. Um, you know, I mean, in particular right now, you know, diversity and inclusion, I think we've got great yeah. science on that, you know, to help elevate conversations. Um, but, you know, really, um, since the book launched and the response to the book has been so strong, I've actually, I've really felt, um, almost an ethical pulling to make sure that I keep doing lots of research in the area, um, yeah. because I want to be able to answer, um, you know, questions um, not just recycling everything I've said, but to try to add new content to it. 
So um, I really have, I mean, it's easily 80% of my research now is really in the meeting space. It's in just some different content. Um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I, I'm, I'm so drawn to this one-on-one -on -one meetings. Um, I, you know, it looks like 50% of meetings are just one-on-ones. Yeah. And so leaders, um, they're doing their jobs through these one-on-one -on -one meetings and there's no research on it. Um, yeah. So what do leaders do? Um you know, how do, you know, do leaders create an agenda? Do they let their employee create the agenda? I mean, there's so much content. What are the best leaders doing? How are they mm -hmm. using their one-on-ones versus those leaders who aren't effective? And I'm drawn to that quest. Awesome. Are you, awesome. you going to bring it real down to plebeians? I am. I, I feel like that's <laughs> going to be, um, if, if, I, if someone says to me, what's your next book going to be? I actually think that that's the closest thing to an answer I have. I think I, I, a book on one-on-one -on -one meetings could be really, really meaningful, I think, to, to folks. Gosh, I, I just can't wait. Absolutely. Hurry up, hurry up, Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. So we're coming close to the, the end of our time together. But Chris, could you just really quickly remind folks about the contest quickly? All right. So we're giving... We're giving, right? And we're buying these books. So Stephen, we don't, we, cause we want to donate to Stephen's greatness that he's doing <laughs> over there, but we're buying these books for our listeners. So daggone it, get, get with it. So www.indigotogether.com slash contact. All right. We need your name, location, and what you do. We're trying to figure out who our listeners are. Uh, you keep coming. We love it. Uh, we want to know your thoughts on the podcast and anything you'd like us to cover, whatever you want to tell us. Um, and then we need you to write a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and include that text in the body, right? So the first three that get us this are going to get a copy right away. It's just coming to you. Now, for those of you who are late, don't worry. We're going to do a drawing for the remaining two over the next 30 days. And, and we'll get those out to you. So excited to share this book. If you don't want to wait, just go buy it right now. Yeah. That, buy, buy five yourself and share them with all the jack wagons that do bad meetings with you. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. You know, and uh, we, we inc we're including a, a link to uh, the Amazon site where you can buy it uh, in the show notes, as well as a link to, to Stephen's personal website. Um, Which, by the way, was... So generously created by Indigo Anchor, um, they, you know, this we, we was, did help. Um, you know, I, when I, the book released and it started getting the media stuff and the CPS was in the hopper, you know, basically Ben said to me, Stephen, it's time to have a big boy website. <laughs> and, um, not only did he say that you need a big boy website, but I'll, I'll create it for you. And then the Indigo <laughs> team you know, created this website for me just as a gift. And it's been fabulous. It's it's such a good website. It's interesting. I'm, I'm really keeping it updated with lots of resources. You can get there, uh, stevenrogelberg.com um, or thesurprisingscience.com, either way. And uh, big thanks, though, to the Indigo folks for for making it. No, Listen, well, I just... You're welcome. I, I just want to say, in this world of advertisement, and top flight Hollywood movies where professionals have learned to manipulate your emotions out, out the end of the world, right? That Stephen really does. The passion that you hear is evidenced by the life that Stephen Rogelberg has lived. And to make that website for you was like a no brainer because we just so believe, so believe in your mission and what you're doing. 
And then we so believe in this kind of practitioner-based layperson's book that's based in science. You're one of the only one. So thank you. Thank you for doing that work. And, and we've been really just, you know, for lack of a better term, blessed by your life and your research. Well, that's right. It's very generous of you. I appreciate yeah. that very much. Yeah, Stephen, you know, just thank you so much for being part of the Indigo podcast. And I'll uh, I'll let you have the last word. Anything final that you'd like to share with our listeners? Hey, you could just read that passage from my book. That that kind of summed it all up. <laughs> no, right. I, um, I I really want to, I'm going to make my last word about you all. Um, I want to congratulate you for putting this together. Um, you know, you put together this podcast. It's a, it's a, it's a crowded space. You took a, a different approach and you're killing it. It's getting lots of viewers. It's getting lots of high, um, you know, ratings and appealing to folks. And so that's a that's a really meaningful and profound um, accomplishment. It's not a surprise um, when I think about the things that both of you do, um, but it's really it's something that um, you should feel really proud of. So I'm grateful to be part of your your session. Um, really appreciate the work that you're doing. I think to elevate. Um, important messages to elevate the science, right? Because I can't do it by myself. So the fact that you provide a forum, you know, to talk about, you know, I think meaningful work is, uh, is just, is very appreciated. So thank you both. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks for listening to the Indigo Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider helping us by rating us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, telling your friends about us, having us on your podcast, or mentioning us on social media. Our website is www.indigopodcast.com, where you can access more information about us and this episode. Thanks again, and we look forward to talking with you again soon.